I'm Lior Phillips, host of This Must Be The Gig. We're a weekly podcast that documents everything about the world of live music. Speaking with choreographers, costume and set designers, the people who run beloved venues and festivals, and, of course, speaking with musicians about that one gig that changed their lives. Get your peek behind the curtain at consequenceofsound.net, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too. And I'll be right there behind you. Constant listeners, and welcome again to The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast presented by the Consequence Podcast Network. I'm your host, Editor-in-Chief Michael Rothman, a constant contributor to this podcast and also to Halloweenies, a Freddy Krueger podcast, and The Fifth Dimension, a Twilight Zone podcast. You're probably wondering why we're not talking about the dark half of the movie, considering that we just talked about the dark half of the book. And that's a legitimate question, and I have a legitimate answer. Well, we just need a little bit more time, but we do have some connective tissue. Today, we're going to be speaking to composer Christopher Young, who has multiple ties to King's Dominion. For one, he composed the themes and scores for George A. Romero's The Dark Half Adaptation from 1993, in addition to this year's Pet Cemetery remake. Remember that one? So we thought that this was a, a pretty topical and um, uh, relevant conversation for you to hear, and it's quite a conversation. Uh, Christopher and I, or shall I say Mr. Young, I'll call him Christopher. <laughs> we had a lot of discussions about uh, horror movies and Yorgi Ligeti. We talked about his past works with Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. <laughs> That's a topical issue for the Halloweenies podcast that I just mentioned before. In addition to his work on Hellraiser and countless other movies that he's worked on, he is what we like to call a legend. Uh, and I also found out that him and I have a kinship with regards to holiday decorations. So please enjoy this very, very fun and lively conversation between Christopher and I. And uh, stick around afterwards because I have a few news bulletins to, to share with you. So see you on the other side. Hello, Michael. Hey, how you doing? Very good. Thank you very much for taking the time to do this. No, no, thanks. Thanks so much for, you know, definitely taking the time to do it with us. I mean, it's actually serendipitous. I am just happened to be talking about three of your movies within the past two to three weeks. At Consequence of Sound, we have a bunch of podcasts. One of them is The Losers Club, which is the Stephen King podcast. And we just talked about Pet Cemetery, And then this week, we're going to be talking about The Dark Half. But then we also, we also run a, a, a horror podcast. And we just also talked about Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Oh, very, wow. That's fantastic. It's pretty wild. Thank you very much. That's, that's <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. I really love your score for Pet Cemetery, and, and I think that it really captures the dread of the novel. And I wanted to ask, did you read the novel prior to scoring this, or did you stick strictly to the source material that was in the script? I'm embarrassed to say that, though I've read 
some of Stephen King's work, and I have a humongous collection of you know, sort of classic uh, uh, ghost stories, horror stories, whether primarily from English writers at the turn of the last century, some first editions. I had not read Tenth Cemetery when I got the call on it. And um, nor had I seen the the, the original movie. Uh-huh. Uh, rather, I got I got the screenplay, and and I read I read that before the interview I had with uh, Dennis and Kevin. Mm-hmm. They were they were they were in Canada shooting, and we did a Skype thing. So I read the the script, and then I said, "Well, I should really watch the movie." at least for starters, before I had this interview. And I started watching the film and I said, you know what? This is not what I was expecting Pet Cemetery to look like or be like based on the screenplay I've just read. And so I did not watch the movie. And in addition, ultimately, though, I wanted to read the book. Uh, I never did. I got a copy of it. And it just turned turned out that the clock was ticking, and it was like, I think I know what I want to do for this, based on what I was reading and seeing in the, in the new movie and what the directors were saying. So I I feel somewhat guilty, and and I'd have to bow my head in in uh, in, uh, no. in forgiveness if I was to walk in if Stephen King was to have walked in the room, you know, say. Sorry, man. I just didn't read the book. You know, <laughs> it's so macabre, and I think you absolutely capture that. And one of the things I noticed is that it sounds as if they're almost digging sounds. And I wondered if you had recorded anything like outside that you had been able to patch through into the score. Uh, well, definitely there are some non-acoustic uh, or instrumental elements mm-hmm. that are included in it. A lot of the score, the majority of the score, is the recording of acoustic instruments and then manipulating them and twisting them in ways that they don't, they're kind of become almost unrecognizable. But yes, there are a handful of sounds that are, that are come from, you know, sound effects, you know, right in the main title, the opening piece on the CD, there's a sound of, of walking on gravel, yeah. which got manipulated, crunching gravel sound like sound. And that's precisely what it is. It is gravel. That's awesome. You hear it in the main, the opening cue, and then again, it reappears a handful of times throughout the score. That's probably the most blatant non-instrumental sound that was used, you know, that really sticks out. It takes you there. I found myself in a daze because of those sounds. Oh, that's very, that's wonderful. You know, a buddy of mine, Daniel Schwager, I did a review of it. That's that's one of the he's a great music editor, but he also writes reviews on film. And he said, "Oh, Chris, how did you get that underwater sound that was like permeating the whole score? Seems like it's an underground or mm-hmm. underwater kind of thing." And I went, "Hmm, that's new. <laughs> you know, what does he mean by that exactly?" And then I, I started thinking. I said, "Well, yeah, I guess I can see how." The whole package sort of has this beneath the ground attitude about it, yeah. you know, which is what the film is about. You know, this this uh, diseased uh, area of this horror, this underground horror that yeah. exists. And um, so I suppose that's kind of there. 
not consciously, but maybe subconsciously. Invaded some some of the sound choices, not consciously on my part, that's for sure. But that was his take. On it. You've mentioned in past interviews one of the composers that literally is pretty much informed how I even like look at horror, Georgi Laghetti. That's right. I had found him the same way I've read that you did, which was the opening of two thousand one. And for me, as a kid, hearing you know just those sound effects, and I think the way you described it was like, "Was this heaven or this is hell?" is exactly kind of the same way that I had when I read that in your interview. I was like, "Oh my god, somebody else sees it the same way that that I've always felt it." And I kind of felt that there was a huge Leggetti influence over this Pet Cemetery score, for sure. Just the way that you create those swells. And I wonder if that might have been the underwater effect that your colleague was saying. Maybe, but definitely. You say you, when you listen to Pet Cemetery, you kind of saw the connection between that score as an updated version of the same kind of music that Leggetti wrote. And with, well, he didn't write it for 2000. No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. But you're saying there's a connection. Well, that you know what? If you feel that, then I've really hit a home run. <laughs> I mean, I don't feel like I'm stealing from him, but I'm saying you're actually right. I have extremely vivid memories of going into the theater when I was really, really young. When 2001 came out, I, I can't even remember how old I was, but I was pretty young. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, you know, the only thing that I was really aware of that, that was music at the time was the stuff I was hearing on the radio, AM radio, which was basically the Beatles, the Beach Boys, and the Birds. And then I go into the theater and I hear this weird cluster stuff for, you know, the monolith and all this stuff that's going on in outer space. And I I was like, you know, it didn't even sound, it didn't even sound like music. Where is this coming from? You know, it can't be performed or have been written by a human being you know it was just it was so unlike anything and it just definitely within an instant you kind of felt like you were being introduced to a sound a sonority that was of not of this earth mm-hmm. and and then uh, that has never left me mm-hmm. i mean i adore his music and i've studied it for sure uh especially that particular period, the 60s and the 70s, when he sort of invented or you know, created that, that sonority that we most often identify with him because of 2001. Yeah. And yes, that still sits in my head, in the back of my head. Everything that I write in which I'm also trying in a different language to address this sort of intangible... And it's, you know, uh, what's going on behind the image in those areas of the film that are invisible. You know, I know it's kind of sounds kind of strange, but yeah, that's, that's the, the, like trying to accomplish in my own way, what he did so magically or was done so magically by using his music in those scenes in outer space with the monolith and then traveling uh, to Jupiter. I mean, that's some of the most haunting uh, sounds it, in the way that he uses the space and music itself. He was never afraid to allow that silence to peek out where you almost wonder if the record or the, <laughs> the song is done and you've just been listening to nothing, but then all of a sudden it comes back. And 
I see that a lot in your work and these amazing swells. Hellraiser score is a perfect example of that. Having these ungodly swells where you just feel so overwhelmed. and you, But then you go back to something like what you did with Nightmare on Elm Street 2, and you have that minimalistic piano that just pierces you in a way that's, yeah. it's almost like you're in, in this like hypnotic days. I think when I first started working in, in horror films or suspense films, my inclination, uh, because of my interest in this music concrete thing and this big wall of sound that, that you can get out of an orchestra, mm-hmm. you know, was to, it was to, as often as possible, swallow the picture with, like I said, sort of an orchestral film score uh, of uh, uh, Phil Spector approach to, to, to thinking where you have, you know, multiple thick layers of stuff going on simultaneously. And then, of course, as you get older, you, you, know, you begin to realize the significance and the true beauty. And this is something definitely I'm going through now more than ever that often the smartest thing to do is something which is extremely simple. Now, in horror films, there is that give and take. There are those moments, of course, like you said, where there has to be this this, and, you know, like this massive wave mm-hmm. of titanic power in the score in order to create, you know, um, like the kind of emotional response in the audience that that is at the far end of the uh, at the uh, spectrum and using a really teary-eyed melody to get the whole audience and you know sobbing you know here i'm supposed to get them screaming and so yes often the way to do that is by you know taking over the theater with this wall of sound mm-hmm. uh, so i love doing that i've always adored doing that but at the same time, and I think I discovered this really with Hellraiser, and this is through the direction or the reminding, you know, Clive reminded me that sometimes the smartest thing to do in terms of creating uh, a believable universe for these kind of stories to exist is by seducing the audience with something extremely simple. Mm-hmm. something like you say a solo instrument or something that's nearly a solo instrument you know and i've kind of said you know it's weird i mean you're talking devil terminology and i i'm not a satanist or anything, so I, don't, <laughs> I don't believe any of that but I'm, I'm i'm guessing that you know sometimes the way the devil will work his way in inside of you is by whispering yeah by by saying sweet things to you that 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 make you want to align yourself with him if he knows just the right words to say to work his way into your heart, you know, mm-hmm. but not screaming at you, not vomiting on you, but seducing you with pretty words like a, like a, like a, a lover would. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that kind of concept is definitely something that works in movies. Sometimes you can seduce the, uh, the audience into uh, finding on the dotted line in terms of the storyline mm-hmm. by using something extremely simple, you know, and that's that's the kind of language they understand, you know, um, you know, uh, it's it's uh, we start with lullabies as children, right? Yeah. It's not like our moms, 
But my mom did sing me, sing me Schoenberg 12 tone music when I was a kid, uh, or Ligeti. You know, they were they were sing, she was singing little little, little lullabies, you know. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, there's something just just intrinsically uh, seductive about something about lullabies and yeah. simple solutions, musical solutions to sometimes complicated uh, storylines. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. Would you say that those spare parts are much more difficult to construct than, say, once you finally get to the, the swells? So the simple stuff is much, yeah. The simple stuff, of course, is always much more hard to write. Writing a great tune mm-hmm. is always an extremely complicated thing to do. You know, melodies are not so important anymore, mm-hmm. as you know, in film music. Uh, but at the, you know, in, in, in I believe that, in, you know, that in, in, in a short history of film music, essentially what com- the composers, the, the, the makers of the music for movies are best remembered for is that one or two tunes uh, or in the case of John Williams, many tunes that they've written for successful movies. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone can remember the theme from Star Wars or Indiana Jones, you know, uh, and, and in the case of, uh, you know, Lalo Schifrin, it's, you know, it's the Mission Impossible theme, yeah. you know, um, uh, you know, with uh, Jerry Goldsmith, I guess it would be the Star Trek theme. You know, the themes, themes, themes. Yeah. Writing a great theme is not an easy thing to do, you know, and it's the hardest thing to do, you know. Um, to write a to write a tune that's that's not memorable, well that's a lot easier. But to write a tune that that that, that like immediately uh, burns its way into your brain, uh, that's not an easy thing to do. And let's face it, horror films have never been known for their wonderfully sweet melodies, you know, <laughs> are, are wonderful. You know, we very rarely talk about the great melodies written for movies to have come from horror films. And yet there are some really catchy tunes yeah. that have come from horror films. Well, that's what I wanted to Lullaby. ask about, because nowadays you don't really see the melodies you mentioned before. Like, they've kind of moved away from that, and I wonder why. I wonder why, too, because you would think that a director just on the basis of the history of, of films and how often a great tune becomes as integrated with the success of the film as the film itself. You know, when we talk about Star Wars, we immediately talk about the tune, you know, the main theme, the various themes, you know, Darth Vader's theme. And this is all a part of the legend that is created around the movie. So you'd think a direct directors would want to have that theme mm-hmm. that yeah. will ever be associated with a movie, but that's gone. For the so, most part, that is very gone. Um, why, you ask? Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's you know I I I I'm kind of baffled, but I would have to say that many it is we are of a, a period now where a time where um, I think directors. And studios and everybody are concerned that a writing a melody is saying too much. It's making too strong of a statement, mm. and it's hipper to have the music 
just sort of be there and generally, you know, loose, lightly complimenting the needs of the movie and being somewhat appropriate, I mean, appropriate at any given moment, but not so appropriate that it's contributing as much as a melodic score would. Mm-hmm. Melodic scores say so much more. A lot of melodic scores, um, you know, don't. Uh, they don't say as much. And, you know, I wrote some melodies for Pet Cemetery on the CD that you heard. Um, the, uh, you know, there's a couple of melodies on that that never made it into the movie. Mm-hmm. But I included them anyway. And I, I'm not disagreeing with them. I'm not going to find fault in their choices here. Mm-hmm. Please don't don't misunderstand. Oh, yeah, no, no, not at all. There's a melody that I wrote was at the last minute taken out. You know, I mean, at oh. the very last minute, the tune, the melody line itself was removed, and what's left is just chords. Mm-hmm. It's just the chords that support the melody. Mm-hmm. And that's precisely, you know, I think an example of where they felt that that the tune was saying too much. Yeah, uh, I don't know what it was, but it, you know, I don't know what how it ends up happening. But this concept of just pads and tuneless chord progressions, or you know, uh, sound designy like textures and ambiences. That's kind of where we're at now. Would you say, despite that, the horror genre still offers the most opportunity to add some personality with the score? You mean e- even if you're not using melody? Yeah, yeah. In a, in a score. Yeah. It does have a. Uh, you know what? Uh, I got to tell you something. I think there's there's an incredible array of talent, talented young composers who are working in the horror genre for mm-hmm. sure. But they're kind of now that ninety percent of the scores are done since. Yeah. You know, again, when you're talking about. The Dark Half and Nightmare on Elm Street 2, those were done in the day when the idea of doing a synth score was like, what? No, 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 no. You just don't do that. I mean, yeah. it, wasn't, it was just starting to happen, but it wasn't, it wasn't the norm. It was, it was, uh, I remember when I did Nightmare 2, uh, Nightmare 1 was done by Charles Bernstein, mm-hmm. And it was a it was a similar you know a home studio synth score. Yeah, I think it's great. It's a great score. It's the best of the group, better than mine. But I remember when I was hiring, man, I was told, whatever you do, don't do what he did. And mm-hmm. I went, what do you mean by that? We don't want that synth sound. You know, that's wow. cheap. That's no good. <laughs> it's, it's it's we feel like they kind of felt like they've been ripped off or something. And they wanted to, they wanted to give me very little money and make me do, and have me turn over big orchestra score or as big as I could with the money. So that was sort of the scene back then. Now that it's synth and then ninety percent of all all horror films are being scored with synths. Uh, and everyone seems sort of using the same libraries, mm-hmm. you know, and it starts to sound the same. I mean, you know. Uh, it's there's a similarity, I think, from from score to score, uh, sometimes you know, uh, in which it's it is kind of hard to distinguish one from the other. But that may be just me, you know. I, I'm not totally on top of of the horror music scene. You know better than I would. <laughs> but my concern is that. Um, since uh, everyone seems to be grabbing from the same factory library, 
libraries, you know, if uh, you know, uh, it, it's going to have to end up sounding the same. It, and I, I would think like it to is. think, yeah, you know, so, yeah. So I'm, I'm trying in my own stuff. Like that's the rule. The rule is stay away from that factory stuff. <laughs> I like that. You know, try to create, try to create my own sounds for that movie. So hopefully, by doing that. The score just will sound just a little bit less familiar, mm-hmm. you know. I've read in interviews how you have a, a strong direct line with a lot of filmmakers. You like to speak with the filmmakers when you're, you're working on these scores, and you've worked with the most essential masters of horror out there. I mean, you, you worked with Toby Hooper. I mean, you, you, you'd mentioned already Clive Barker, George Romero, wow. Sam Raimi. And I wondered, were there lessons that you learned on these projects that you still carry with you in your back pocket 20, 30 years later? I mentioned Clive Barker a lot, mm-hmm. only because, you know, when I came on um, Hellraiser, I just finished Nightmare 2, and um, he was very specific about the score not being like Nightmare 2. He said, I don't want a Nightmare 2 score. <laughs> I said, what do you mean by that exactly? He said, well, you know, that's just a bunch of scary, impersonal music. And he said, what I need here in this movie, this is a tragedy as all great horror movies and stories are, there's a certain amount of tragedy connected with them. So what did Clive do? Clive, he's the guy who showed to me the significance of simplicity. Mm -hmm. Again, the point that you were mentioning, that I can get big and ugly, but then I can can come down and and do something very much intimate, soft, and, and, uh, and expressive. And, uh, you know, when I walked into that movie, Hellraiser, I thought I was just going to paste all this heavy-handed stuff all over it. And he was the one who probably, maybe I was going to get there on my own, but he certainly directed me towards trying to uh, find a heart in the movie and, and try to accomplish it simply when 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 the, the moment when it was required. Mm-hmm. So I learned a lot from him. I mean, the, the main theme for Hellraiser is pretty simple. There's nothing that mind-blowing about it, but hopefully it, it gives you this sense of mystery immediately. Oh, totally. Totally does. I mean, it starts off like this, you're standing on a cold, dark night, and then all of a sudden you're in hell. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what was intended. Exactly <laughs> what was intended. Now, with George Romero, I was scared and shitless. I mean, George was a celebrity. This was... You know, this was Clive's first. Hellraiser was Clive's first movie. Mm-hmm. He wasn't as he wasn't a celebrated director as an author. Yes, and I loved his books of blood, and so I felt completely akin and in line with his thinking. But he hadn't established himself as a director yet. Of course, with George Romero, he was he was you know, and you couldn't get any bigger than him at the time. Mm-hmm. And so when he chose me to do. Uh, the dark half. I, in, fra- in fact, I was scared shitless, you know, because I wanted so badly to impress him, you yeah. know, to, and he, and you know, his scores for the most part, his scores were electronic. They, yep. he had always worked outside of the Hollywood system mm-hmm. and that those Hollywood orchestral scores, I think turned them off. And so I was really the first, I think I was one of the first, guys that he worked with that delivered an orchestral score and um, and a guy from Hollywood who was doing it nonetheless, you know. <laughs> and so I just thought that, uh, well, I better do this right. 
And in that case, I did read the book. I did read the, the Stephen King book. Mm-hmm. I definitely did. And uh, that helped direct me. But more importantly, I, you know, I wanted to get inside, inside of um, George's head mm-hmm. and see the film from his perspective because he brought something special to it. Yeah. And what I, one of my memories of, of, of this was that, uh, you know, this was back in the days before synthesize, before, you know, composers would do mock-ups of their, or what was going to be orchestral music. And so I think he would come over to my, he came over to my office and I would play this stuff on the piano to him. Um, and, you know, hopefully I was describing it with my playing, which is pitiful, um, well enough so that he got a handle on what the score was going to be. Well, that's the way it was back then. And and what they would do is they would walk on the stage and they'd hear it with the orchestra for the first time. And uh, that score was recorded in Germany. And oh, wow. just before we were to get on the plane, George lost his hearing, or it was... It was failing in his right ear. I think it was right or left ear. One of his two ears, he started losing his hearing, and it was advised that he not get on a plane to fly overseas. So I went over there with just someone representing him uh, to decide whether or not the score was was working. And um, so that was sort of weird. The first time he heard the score... (laughs) was actually on the mixed stage, on the dub stage. He's previewing the score for the first time while he's dubbing it into the movie. <laughs> and of course, I was terrible. Come on. Yeah. He didn't get to say anything when we were recording the score. He didn't get, give me his input. It was just the... the uh, um, Gary Getzman was the name of the guy who came overseas with us. And he was the one who gave me input as to what the score needed to be. So... Anyway, um, I was triply scared shitless oh, yeah. when he's hearing the score for the first time on the dub stage. And, uh, but fortunately, you know, he, he liked it. Um, and I ran into him. I went to, I didn't see him for years, you yeah. know. And then I, he did one of these seminars. He did one of these con- horror conventions. Mm-hmm. And I heard he was going to be there. So I went there and I... I, you know, I went up to him and I said, yeah, I don't know if you even remember me, you know, but I did the score, you know, for um, The Dark Half, I don't know, 20 years ago or whatever it was, 25 years ago, maybe it was even 30 years ago. This is a little long. This is, yeah. And I said, uh, I, I pray to God you still, when you watch the film, you, you think fondly of that score. And he said, I said, I worry about that. Because we didn't have a lot. You weren't recording stuff, so you kind of stuck with the score. And the dub station says, Chris, I really like the score. Believe me when I tell you, I really like the score. I said, oh, God, you just made it. You just, you know, you just took a a ghost or, you know, an anxiety out of my life. Because I, you know, we didn't talk. I mean, you know. He's stuck with his score. He says he likes it. He dubs it into the movie. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I just I just worry about these things. I want to make sure these guys are, are happy. Oh, of course. You know? 
Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Of course. And so um, I'm very, 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 very lucky in that short time that I was with him that I had the opportunity to collaborate with him that our our lives are past crossed. Yeah. He never came back to Hollywood. I don't think that was his last Hollywood movie, wasn't it? I think. He did a few. He came back to the zombie genre in the late aughts with Land of the Dead. And there was some stuff in the, like, the late 90s and early 2000s that he did that were, you know, he was always on his own island. And I think that was what was so great about him, too. So, um, well, I, I was just, yeah. When I came on board, there was, as I recall, you know, his experience with a lion on that film is not the best. Mm. As a matter of fact, I have a memory of the end of the film. But I, I, you know, he said, don't bother scoring it because it's going to get replaced. And I ended up writing a cue at the last minute. Uh, and and uh, it, the, no, they did not replace the end. It wasn't what he wanted. He thought he was going to reshoot it. Uh, but I think, well, what did I really cue? Anyway, because that's, the one, that's the one that ended up in the movie. Yeah, so George, I, I learned how to, I had to find a way to introduce this idea of an original orchestral score being a part of the, of his movie making process. And he helped me figure out how, how he's going to make it work <laughs> to his liking. Yeah. You know, and, and so he directed me really well. If that score works, it is, it's really because he did a brilliant job at directing me. I've read you compose in a room full of jack-o'-lanterns. Is that true? <laughs> yes, that's very true. I'm a, I'm a collect, essentially, the focus of my collection is holiday sort of kitschy paraphernalia. Yeah, so, you know, Christmas, Halloween, Easter, Valentine's Day, those are the four holidays that get most attention Love it. Uh, to that end halloween and christmas are my two favorites mm-hmm. and so uh at my i you know uh in, in my garage at the house here it's been taken over by jack-o'-lantern masks <laughs> uh, i have a i have a gigantic collection of jack-o'-lantern masks Interesting. When I say gigantic, I'm guessing about 200 or something. Oh, my God. I mean, wow. it's not gigantic. Yeah, That's awesome. It's gigantic, but it's a fair amount. Is that correct in saying 200? Saying, uh, yeah, about, the, yeah, I mean, not all in the room. Some of them are in storage, but, yeah, probably around 200 jack o' I may be exaggerating here, man. I've never, I haven't counted them in a long time, 
But yeah, that that is one of my obsessions is collecting, uh, you know, pumpkin jack-o'-lantern masks. Also, pumpkin and jack-o'-lantern paraphernalia. Yeah. Uh, And that I have at the office, and I've got way too much in storage now. (laughs) It's sort of... well, you're preaching it's to the choir. I'm literally recording this while surrounded by Halloween lights, uh, Christmas lights. We have um, a happy Halloween sign. We have multiple jack-o'-lantern pumpkins. I'm all, all for that. I just think it's aesthetically pleasing. I think there's something about it that just it, it's because it captures those feelings of those respective holidays. It, there's something about it that is comforting to me. Oh, oh, with pumpkins? Yeah. Oh, definitely. You want to be, well, you know, my stuff, I'm pretty much, I'm exclusively pumpkins. So yeah. I can walk into a store that has, you know, a Halloween paraphernalia for sale. And I immediately move towards the jack o yeah. And it's been that way for as long as I can remember. That's so cool. Um, but um, where does that come from? Uh, that comes from when I was a kid, I was, into you know back in those days we didn't have pre pre lit manufactured plug in pumpkins yeah you had to carve them you know it was the only way you could do it and there was a ritual to that you know on the on from the east coast and and uh, you know it always it, it always kind of fascinated me that became the symbol of Halloween really and something that the family would would you know get together to do as a group mm-hmm. uh, and they caught one or two, three, maybe up to four pumpkins and you know, light them with candles and put them out in front of their house on Halloween and a, the nights before and a few nights afterwards. And there was just something that so, so was so remarkable about that. And, and I do remember you know, spending a lot of time looking into the lit pumpkins, mm-hmm. carved faces. And, and uh, to me that was sort of, they acted as a, I, I've said in the past, it's kind of acted like a conduit between, you know, the visible and the invisible world. So I could at nighttime look into the pumpkin, the lit pumpkin, as it was constantly fluctuating mm-hmm. because it was, you know, real candle moving in the wind and the internal, you know, light and shadowing uh, were constantly in flux. There was something very mysterious. Yeah. And I, I, I you know, in my imagine my, my child like, you know, in, in the imagination that you, know, I was able, as only a child can, to conjure up, you know, this these images of somehow this being a way to enter into that beyond yeah. that's that's out in darkness. You know, I love that. Um, so I, love I, that. I, I I developed this this affinity for, for and I I put it to the side for years and didn't really make the connection again until I walked into a store that was selling jack-o'-lantern masks and they had this one in particular that had, was like a three-faced mask it was simply called uh, uh the lantern mm-hmm. and um it was like oh my god and a connection which made and then i became obsessed yeah. and it's cooled down a bit i must say that has cooled down a bit but it's 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 still there my house I mean, when you, you're in, where are you now? I'm in Chicago. Yeah. But yeah. Well, if you ever come out to LA, you definitely have to call me because if you're, if you, if you got lights, Halloween and Christmas lights, yeah. I have a Christmas tree. Uh, the room that I, I was just talking to you, I'm in a different room now, but the room that I was talking to you in has got my piano and a Christmas tree 
with masks and lights on it that oh, turn awesome. on every night. Oh, my God, that's awesome. I have a Christmas. <laughs> yeah, it lights up every night. Oh, I love it. And uh, it's an artificial tree, of course, yeah. but it's a pretty convincing artificial tree. And as I said, it's got masks and puppets on it and all these weird things hanging from it. But yes, um, so that's on every night. I have, I have a life-size Santa Claus who who who's at the bottom of my staircase that I see every morning. <laughs> that's so great. And 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 yeah, I mean, you, you your eyes would pop out of your head. You'll have to come here. If you ever come to LA? <laughs> well, definitely. If you're a collector like, you know, if you're a collector like I am, or like to have, you know, Halloween and Christmas lights. Oh, I love those lights, man. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm totally with you. Yeah, you know how these bright, bright colored lights going on. It's something, something about it. I, I, don't, I can't explain it. I can't, but it yeah. stimulates me. I used to just blame it on Ray Bradbury because I would read Ray Bradbury novels growing up, and I just loved the idea of you know the branches hitting the window, and I could see the moon from my bed, and having those memories. I guess tied to the fact that he was talking about those very same things in the books that I was reading, and then also just having that magic of these holidays that allow you to blur the lines of reality a little bit. It's like. I used to find myself oh, totally. getting so depressed when they were over. <laughs> so now that I'm older, I'm just like, yeah, fuck it. Totally, I'm putting it up all the time. Totally with you. You know? So now you get to keep them up year round. Yes. Same with me. <laughs> but that's not it. I said, I've got eggs for, for Easter. I have all these alabaster eggs planted all over and hearts. I have what I call the, the hall of hearts. It's actually my stairway upstairs. There's nothing but heart stuff Um you know, as you're walking up the stairs. So it's a mixture of those four holidays. Account for everything, pretty much everything you see in in my house and at my office can be attributed to holidays. Yeah, that's awesome. God, that's so cool. And you mentioned you collect books too, like uh, like first editions? Yeah, yeah. I've got a hum- humongous collection of ghost stories, horror stories, fantasy, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, and a lot of these things... Uh, were you know written you know by uh, you know authors that date back to you know the mid 1800s. Oh wow! Most you know most of them uh, early 1900s. Uh, you know this early stuff. You know mm-hmm. authors like uh, Algernon Blackwood. Uh, let's see here. Who am I reading now? Uh, Sax Romer, Sheridan Lefanu. Lord Dunsany, Oliver Onion, these these kinds of of authors are the ones that uh, that really excite me. That's awesome. You know, was it like mostly ghosts that they're they're writing about, or is it? Um... Yeah, I like ghost stories. Yeah, I'm a big fan of ghost stories. Why am I a big fan of ghost stories? As I am a big fan of ghost story movies, mm-hmm. because. It's it, it it's about what you can't see. Mm-hmm. You know, it requires that the that the viewer or the reader imagine what what is this thing that is responsible for the hauntings of yeah. these spaces. You know, very rarely do we get a you know a uh, the descriptions are, are kind of vague uh, of the confrontations that will happen with that spirit. The feeling, the essence of the horror connected to the experience is very vivid if the author's good. But I just, you know, I like the invisibility of it all. Yeah. You know, um, you know slasher movies, yeah, it's about a kook on the loose. You see them, <laughs> and, and they're out. They're just out to kill for, for no reason really at all. 
Yeah. And whatever reasons were given don't really add up to much of anything mm. anyway. No. So ghost stories and, and classic monster stories, you know, tragic monster stories like Frankenstein and Wolfman. Those are my favorites. Yeah. My favorite movie is the um it's a black and white version of the haunting. Oh God, me too. Directed by uh, love directed it. by Robert Wise. Mm-hmm. That that's go hands down my favorite scary movie. I don't even call that a horror movie. It's a yeah. scary movie. Yeah. Well, because you just don't um, see anything, and that's what's great. Because you just the whole time you're convinced you see something. There are the, the use of shadows is just fascinating to me in that movie because it doesn't matter how many times I've seen it. I'm so convinced I see something in different parts of the movie all the time. And there was nothing there. It's just your imagination playing games. Yeah. And that's the best type of horror. Exactly. You know? Um, exactly. Yeah. Have you read the book? There's a, the book yeah. is called The Haunting of Hill House by yeah. Shirley Jackson. I love that book. Yeah. You've read that? Yeah. The, there's a, oh, yeah, um, I love it. Did you watch the series last year on uh, Netflix? I did, oh, the series yeah. called Hill House? Yeah. The Mike Flanagan has I a, did, an I, adaptation. I, I, no, you know, I should have. I did not. It's pretty cool. They definitely expand upon it. They modernize it a little bit, and they, they take some liberties with the source material, but it's fun. I mean, they, they do have a lot of elements from the original book that's in there. Um, so if you're a fan of that series, they even do some nods, some clever nods to the um, the Robert Wise movie, too. It's definitely worth oh, watching. Oh, I definitely not. It's, and it's, what is it called? It's called it, Hill it's House? It's The Haunting of Hill House. Yeah, they, they, um, I the think he's, he's, he's turning it into an anthology series now, I guess, but very oh, scary. I look, I've got to see that. I guess my last question for you, though, is what score really does scare you though that that you find yourself actually not able to return to because it there's just something primarily evil about it you know i i there's nothing that i've heard that i if i'm attracted if if i think there's something very frightening that i won't want to hear over and over again Mm -hmm. so there's nothing there's nothing so frightening in music that i i can't i can't go back to it because I'm terrified. No, no. Um, this is the kind of world that I live in. So, yeah. it's, you know, I get asked that question. How do you work on all these slides? So, like a girl asking this question in this in in the Berkeley composers were in my office recently, and they they said, you know, one of this girl said, "Don't you get scared? Don't you? You know, how do you get? How can you possibly work on all these horror movies and not get scared?" And I said, "You know what? No, they don't scare me. There was one." scene in Hellbound that that had this guy ripping himself apart with a razor blade, a guy in mental institution on a mattress. Mm-hmm. And that grossed me out. Yeah. You know, and I thought it was pretty I had a really tough time looking at it and scoring that. I you know, I just didn't want to score because it, it was so revolting. Yeah. Revolting things are hard to deal with, you know. And in that instance, it's the guy is ripping himself apart. It's not like he's yeah. being ripped apart by someone else. But nothing in music has scared me to the point where I could never imagine myself returning to it. Mm-hmm. You know, I've spent a lot of time, I, I probably, you know, have written scores to more movies, uh, you know, of a living composer, uh, more movies that, that have the devil in it or the devil's yeah. a part of it you know, than any other composer, I think, living, you know. I'll probably, I, 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 I should sit down and actually number, but maybe about five or something like that. There's a lot. It had the devil sort of yeah. implied or, or, or actually stated or seen or felt. So I would have to say 
that, you know, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to imagine the devil in music. And mm-hmm. these. So I'm just trying to, you know, so you ask me what's scary. I'd say if I ever got visited by the devil, yeah. actually visited by him, and he accompanied himself with music when he walked in, <laughs> you know, that would scare me, you yeah. know. Yeah. He would scare the shit out of me, but whatever he would surround himself with musically, I'm sure I'd never want to ever hear again, you know. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Well, Young, thank you so much. This is a great conversation, and um, it's good to know there's someone who loves the holidays as much as I do, so... Uh, thanks so much. Oh, I do. I do so much. Call me Chris. Don't call me Mr. Young. Okay. Uh, and and we, if you ever come out here, man, you we got to get together. That'd be great. No, absolutely. Would love to. Wasn't that something? Great guy. And I, uh, I, I just, I love anyone that respects a good holiday. You know, whether it's Halloween or Christmas or Valentine's Day, and. Let's just say um, I'm very excited to see all his decorations. So um, looking forward to that one. And I hope that you're looking forward to staying here in Castle Rock because I'm actually, this whole conversation was uh, held at the Mellow Tiger. Or let's just try to imagine that because we're still here. We still have lots to discuss in Castle Rock. And uh, we're going to be talking next week about the dark half. We're going to finally get into that movie and discuss uh, Timothy Hutton from Ordinary People. You ever see that movie? That's a fun movie. And uh, we'll also be talking about Michael Rooker from Guardians of the Galaxy and uh, my personal favorite, Days of Thunder. So we've got a lot of discussions there, and we also have um, a multitude of great episodes and fresh content, as Rock and Randall likes to call it, uh, coming up in the weeks ahead. So please stay tuned. There are so many headlines that just keep coming into King's Dominion between the, the New Salem slot. Uh, you know, we just talked about Lisey's story, and now, you know, Alex Ross Perry is getting into the mix with of things. So it just, it just never ends. That's why you need to stick around, and you also need to leave us a message. <laughs> a message. You can leave us a message. You can leave us a message on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Goodreads. We're all there. But also leave us a review. We love reviews, uh, especially ones that are five stars and really high ratings. So just go on to wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcast, Podchaser, and if you use a radio, I don't know how you listen to us on a radio, but if you manage to do that, write a review on that. Write a review uh, using your radio. Yeah, exactly. But bottom line, leave us some reviews. We, and we, might even, we might actually even share them. We haven't really done that down here, but uh, sometimes we usually just talk about the negative ones and the ones that hate us when we talk about Trump, but maybe we'll change things. You know, it's a, There's plenty of time in the year to turn things around. But until then, get some good sleep, eat some good food, and listen to some great podcasts <laughs> over long days and pleasant nights. I got some hot friends God, I got some hot Consequence Podcast Network.